Hey, it's PJ. Uh, similar intro to the intro as as last episode, but in this episode, which MC and I recorded the other day, uh, essentially in the intro, it says that it's almost Hanukkah. Hanukkah started last night. And uh, yeah, so get your Hanukkah on, do your Hanukkah stuff, light your menorahs, all that. Enjoy the rest of the episode. See ya. Welcome to PJ's Torah Corner. Hanukkah is almost upon us, so pester your local rabbi for free candles and menorahs if you don't have, and make latkes and jelly donuts. In other news, today we're going over the weekly chumash, meaning the weekly portion of the five books of Moses, with my friend MC. We're also going to mention Rashi, the foremost commentator on the Torah, and his explanation of some parts of this Torah portion. Before we jump into it, here are some Hebrew names for people mentioned in this Torah portion who you may already be familiar with. Yaakov, who is Jacob. Rachel, who is Rachel. Yosef, who is Joseph. Gabriel, who is the angel Gabriel. Reuven, who is Reuben. Yehuda, who is Judah. And Paro, who is the Egyptian pharaoh. So sit back, relax, and learn something. Take it away, MC. Thank you, PJ. This week's Parsha is Parshas Vayeshev. Last week, we saw Yaakov's return to the land of Israel and the challenges he overcame on the journey. We begin this week's portion with Yaakov fully settled in his old home. Yaakov's son Yosef is 17 years old and spends most of his time shepherding with his brothers who are born from the maidservants. He reports gossip to his father of certain negative actions he sees his brother was born from Leah doing. As Yosef is Yaakov's firstborn from his late wife Rachel, he loves Yosef more than his other sons and makes him a robe made of fine wool. Because of this, his brothers begin to resent him. Yosef has a series of dreams that foretell him becoming the future leader of the family, with his brothers and fa- father bowing to him. This leads his brothers to hate him even more. One day, Yaakov sends Yosef to check on his brothers out in the field. A passing stranger points him to where his brothers went, and Rashi tells us this was actually the angel Gabriel who came to warn Yosef of danger to come. The brothers come to the conclusion that Yosef is a threat and an unworthy heir to their father. They originally planned to kill him, but Reuven, the oldest, convinced them to throw him into a pit instead and leave his fate up to divine providence. Really, though, his plan was to come back later and rescue Yosef. When Yosef arrives, the brothers tear off his coat and toss him into a pit. Most of the brothers go to eat lunch, during which time Yehuda suggests that they sell Yosef into slavery rather than leaving, leaving him to die. They sell Yosef to a caravan of Arabs, who sell him to some Midianites, who in turn bring him down to Egypt. By the time Reuven comes back to save Yosef, he is too late. The brothers dip Yosef's robe in blood, and when Yaakov sees the robe, is convinced that Yosef was killed by a wild animal. Yaakov is inconsolable and spends the next 22 years mourning his son. Seeing their father's grief, the brothers blame Yehuda for not talking them out of the whole plan in the first place. Disgraced, Yehuda leaves home. He gets married and has three sons, Er, Onan, and Shelah. Yehuda marries Er off to a woman named Tamar. Er intentionally avoids getting his wife pregnant, and he dies because of this act. Onan then marries his late brother's wife in an act called Yibum to ensure his brother's name will live on. However, not wanting a child who will be considered his brother's offspring also avoids getting Tamar pregnant and dies because of this. Yehuda fears that his last son will also die if married to Tamar, so he gives Tamar a weak excuse and sends her off. Years go by and Yehuda's wife passes away. Tamar, seeing that Yehuda has no intention of marrying her to Shelah and seeing no other way to bear Yehuda's descendants, covers her face, disguises herself as a harlot, and stands on the roadside where Yehuda will pass. Yehuda, not knowing it's Tamar, is intimate with her, 
and gives her his staff, cloak, and signet ring as a pledge for later payment. When Tamar gets pregnant and it's suspected that she committed adultery, she sends Yehuda the items he left her. Realizing he's the one responsible, Yehuda publicly admits to being the father. Tamar gives birth to twins named Peretz and Zerach. Meanwhile, in Egypt, Yosef is sold to Potiphar, minister of Paro and chief of Paro's butchers. God blesses Yosef, and through Yosef, Potiphar becomes extremely successful. Potiphar then entrusts his entire household to Yosef. Potiphar's wife tries to seduce Yosef, but Yosef refuses. Frustrated at her failure, she tells her husband that Yosef assaulted her, and because of this, Yosef is thrown into prison. Even in prison, God makes Yosef successful. He is well-liked by the warden and is even entrusted with helping run the prison. Paro later throws his chief butler and chief baker into the same prison as Yosef. After a year of imprisonment, the two of them have dreams and are unable to determine the meaning. Yosef interprets the butler's dream that in three days he'll be reinstated, and from the baker's dream that in three days he'll be executed. Yosef asks the butler to speak favorably on his behalf when he's released. Three days later, it's Paro's birthday. He has the baker hanged, and the butler returned to his post just as Yosef predicted. However, the butler does not remember to help Yosef, and that's where we come to the end of the Parsha. All right, question time. Why did the brothers dislike Yosef to the extent of willingly consenting to leaving him in a pit with his fate up to, div up to divine providence? I'm asking that because for sons of Yaakov, this seems beneath them. You're right. It, it, it is very difficult to, on the surface, it looks very, it, it's, it's difficult to, to, to conceptualize that. Yeah. Why would they do something that seems so below them? Um, so the, one way to, to, to think about it is, I mean, one way I saw some, some of the commentators was that they were very concerned about the kind of the level of what seemed like ambition that Yosef was showing. To them, it really, it, their, their, their concern was that he was going to turn out to somebody like, like their uncle Esau, that they, they saw him, you know, discussing these dreams he's have of, of, you know, them all being, you know, bowing to him and, you know, mm. all these other, you know, he's going and telling his father about things he saw them doing. I mean, it's, it's a interesting, I mean, Rashi explains that like he, he, he kind of mistakenly saw thought, thought that they were doing something like they were breaking one of the Noahide laws about like eating, like, like meat from a live animal when in fact it wasn't actually, but it looked like it was. Um, and there were other, I mean, so it, it was, it, 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 it is complicated. I mean, but no, I think what really was the issue is they, they, they saw him as a threat. They thought that if he was actually going to become like this future leader and like they, they, he acted like how they feared he was going to act, that he was going to destroy the whole legacy. And he was going to turn out to be someone like Asa who's just going to throw it all away. And so mm -hmm. as to why they were even in a pit, that also that, that is, it is difficult. Um, I mean, really, his intention with the pit, what Ruvain's intention with the pit was that he'd sort of be placed somewhere um, where he could come back later. But uh, even according to that, it is a little difficult because Rashi tells us that the pit was 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 filled with like snakes and other kind of dangerous creatures. So once again, Yosef wasn't essentially kind of being left to to divine providence. I mean, I guess I guess you could say that. I mean, if if the dreams were in fact true. And he was, you know, going to be become the, the leader. I mean, I guess in a sense he would be protected, but even still, yeah. Why why would it is definitely tough. 
Right. Right. Yeah. It's it, it's tough to it's tough to really wrap your mind around. Oh, oh. So next question was, why do you say that when Tamar gets pregnant, she's suspected of adultery? Was she? Why adultery? So technically speaking, the way it was going to work with the the the, the Leverett marriage with the Yibum was that after after Onan died, she was supposed to be married to she, to, to Shella. Um, mm-hmm. And she's basically and the way way Yibum works is that she's basically set that she's got got to marry him unless they perform a ceremony known as Chalitza, where they where where she basically turns down the um turns down the marriage and then she's released from that kind of that bond. Mm-hmm. Um, however, like she she wanted to marry she wanted to marry into the family, but Yehuda found a reason to keep to, to delay it. He gave her an excuse and sent her away, saying, "Just wait. Eventually, we'll 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 have the whole marriage." But it was obvious that he didn't actually want to um to marry her off, and so she was basically stuck in the situation where. She's waiting for a marriage that isn't going to happen. Um, and so once again, when they said when I said adultery, it meant in the sense that she's still technically bound to this 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 marriage that isn't actually going to happen. And so they mm-hmm. thought what they assumed that she had been in some sort of relationship outside of the bonds of that of that leveret marriage. Ah, uh, okay. Because they, they didn't notice her getting married or any talk of anything like that. I see. Interesting. Huh. Okay. I mean, that clarifies it. Yeah. Thanks for your time, MC. This was great. Thank you. Yeah. All right. This has been PJ's Torah Corner. Have a great rest of your day. Bye.